The other evening, <clears throat> I rushed home from work and put on some grubbies. That's an old suit and tie that I have. To watch my uh, son, hello there. I went to watch my son who was playing Little League baseball. When we got back home, I gave him a big hug because he had done a great job playing ball. He said, Dad, you need a shower. <laughs> Only your best friends will tell you <clears throat> how wonderfully refreshing and cleansing that shower felt after being hot and perspiring. How wonderful it is to have one's soul cleansed from guilt before God. And how often we're unaware of our need for that cleansing. Such was the man Isaiah, the finest man in his generation. A man who was born into an upper-class family in Judah. A man who was comfortable with prophets and with kings. A man who was without peer in his character. He was a man who used his position as a prophet to warn the nation of impending judgment because of its disobedience to the Lord. But Isaiah's story really begins in the sixth chapter of the book that bears his name. He tells us that a king died, a man with whom he was intimately acquainted. His name was Uzziah. Uzziah had been a relatively good leader of the nation of Judah. He had ascended to the throne at the age of 16 and had reigned 52 years before he died. During those years, he improved the military position and the defenses of his nation. He was both a farmer and a rancher. And the scripture says about him, as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. But that tells you something, it hints at something that happened in Uzziah's life. For later in his life, in a moment of pride, he was careless about the holy things of God and intruded into the office of the priests and took upon himself some duties that were the prerogatives given to the priests alone by God. <clears throat> He was angry when he was rebuked by the priest because of his intrusion. And immediately, right in the middle of the act, God struck Uzziah with leprosy. It appeared on his body in an instant. And the scriptures say that from that day forward, Uzziah had to live by himself in a house that was provided. And ultimately, he died in shame. That was in 740 B.C. Now it was in that year, in the year that King Uzziah died, that Isaiah relates to us an amazing event. 
this crisis of sovereignty must have motivated Isaiah to go to the temple of God and there to pray. And there his eyes were opened so that he might see the true sovereign, not only of Judah, but of the world. For he says, I saw the Lord. There is no one in this place this morning who can truthfully say that. God simply does not make himself manifest very often. But to Isaiah, God appeared. You will notice that when he says, I saw the Lord, is capital L, small O-R-D, telling us that in the Hebrew language, this is the word Adonai, not the word Yahweh, which is all capitals, but Adonai. I saw Adonai. That word means the sovereign ruler. It is not so much a name for God as it is a title for God. It is like the name President. Mr. President, or we speak of President George Bush. The word President is a title that is understood to refer to him and him alone. The name Adonai is such a title. It refers to the sovereign ruler who is described later in this text as the king, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord Almighty. You will notice the context of this revelation of God. It was in the context of national crisis in the first place. For here was a man who had ruled over his people over half a century, who was now dead. Many of the citizens of that land had never known another king but Uzziah. And now this great king was dead. What was going to happen to this nation? It was also in the context of a royal court that the revelation came. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. It is likely that Isaiah had gone into the temple in Jerusalem, and whether this vision that he had, this appearance of God, took place in that temple or in one that was in a vision, a heavenly temple, is not really clear. But it is a royal court that Isaiah sees. There is a throne. And he sees the long train of the one who sits on the throne. The train, of course, was that piece of cloth that came around back of the king, the sovereign. Those who were kings were known for their greatness by the length of the train that they had. And Isaiah tells us that this piece of cloth came down, cascading from the throne across the steps, and filled the whole temple and out the door. So great was this one who wore this robe. And he says that there were seraphim who stood above him, the Lord. Seraphim are angelic creatures of God. They are described to us here as having six wings. And these particular flaming 
angelic creatures use two of their wings to cover their faces, two to cover their feet in the presence of God, and with two they were able to fly. And it appears that they were flying back and forth across the throne upon which the majesty sat. And they were calling out one to the other. And their words are recorded for us in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Three times the word holy is used. That is a Hebrew literary device which calls attention to this word. If we were typing it on our typewriter, we might go back and put it in bold, or we might underscore it. But in those days, the way that they had of accentuating this truth was to repeat it. Holy, holy, holy. And since it is accentuated, we need to pause for a moment and try to gain some understanding of what holiness is. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, says, The primary meaning of holy is separate. It comes from an ancient word that meant to cut or to separate. To translate this basic meaning into contemporary language would be to use the phrase, a cut apart. Perhaps even more accurate would be the phrase, a cut above something. When we find a garment or another piece of merchandise that is outstanding, that has superior excellence, we use the expression that it is a cut above the rest. He goes on to use the word transcendence as a synonym. Sproul writes, the word transcendence means literally to climb across. It is defined as exceeding usual limits to transcend is to rise above something, to go above and beyond a certain limit. When we speak of the transcendence of God, we are talking about that sense in which God is above and beyond us. It tries to get at his supreme and absolute greatness. The word is used to describe God's relationship to the world. He is higher than the world. The world has no power over him. Transcendence describes God in his consuming majesty, his exalted loftiness. It points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. He is an infinite cut above everything else. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. That's what the seraphim were saying to each other. There is nothing, there is no one like this one on the throne. He is above and beyond everyone or anything. He is holy. It says that the whole earth is full of his glory. 
so powerful were these words that the very foundation of that temple began to shake and to quake. They trembled at the voice of the seraphim crying out. And at the same time, the temple began to fill up with smoke, with incense, as if it were being offered to the one who is seated upon the throne. You talk about a vision. You talk about the context of a revelation. In the time of national crisis, he saw a royal court and a throne whereon was seated the Lord God Almighty. And the content of the revelation was that he is holy. And notice the consequence of the revelation. First of all, there is conviction. Isaiah said, Woe is me. Woe is me. The prophets, in giving their oracles, if the oracle was a good one for the people, would often begin by saying, Blessed. Jesus used that form. For example, on the sermon on, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, blessed, blessed. But on the other hand, when a prophet had an oracle to give that was one of judgment, they began often with the word woe. You see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, where Isaiah has spoken to the nation a nation that had been planted like a vineyard by God and kept and pruned by him, but a vineyard which produced no fruit and which God then laid waste. Now, why did God do that to this people? Well, Isaiah tells them, beginning in verse 8, and six times through the rest of the chapter, he says, Woe to those! Woe to those! Woe to those! Judgment, you see, is being pronounced upon the very people of God because of their sinfulness. Isaiah has just penned these words. And when he comes to chapter 6 to tell us about his vision, he says, So overwhelming was this vision of the Lord that he pronounced judgment upon himself. He said now, Woe is me! I am to be judged. You see, he was overwhelmed with his conviction of sinfulness in the presence of the Holy God. And he confesses that next. He says, I am ruined. I am ruined. The word ruined literally means to be undone or to come apart at the seams. It means to come unraveled. Isaiah is saying that he was experiencing disintegration in his personality because of the vision that he had of God. He was literally coming apart as a person, as a human being, because of the holiness in whose presence he stood. Now understand that here was a man who had it all together. But here was the most virtuous man 
in his nation, in that generation. And yet an instant in the presence of the God that he saw on this throne, this God of absolute holiness, left him shattered. And he said, I am a man unclean. I am a man who is unclean. And he said, I dwell in the midst of a people, a nation, that is like me. Sproul says, Isaiah understood the whole nation was infected with dirty mouths. I live among a people of unclean lips, he said. In the flash of the moment, Isaiah had a new and radical understanding of sin. He saw that it was pervasive in himself and in everyone else. So often we are unaware of our need for cleansing. Isaiah was in the presence of the living God. And in one moment he was made to understand how totally corrupt he was. You and I can be grateful that God does not often expose that much of our own corruption to us. God graciously exposes more slowly the corruption that is in our hearts. For if God pulled back the covers and we saw all of the corruption that was in us in one instant as Isaiah did, we too would come apart at the seams. Isaiah confessed his sin. One of the seraphim responded. One of the seraphim took a burning coal in some tongs. And he flew to where Isaiah was, and with those tongs, he touched that coal to the lips of Isaiah. Isaiah does not record for us what that was like. We can only imagine that it must have seared his lips. The pain must have been intense. And the acrid smell of burning flesh immediately filled his nostrils. But because of that act, he was cleansed. The seraphim said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Uncleanness can only be dealt with by God. It required Isaiah's full understanding of his corruption and his deep repentance in order for his sin to be cleansed. But his guilt was removed. Notice that his dignity as a human being was not destroyed, but his guilt before God had to be dealt with. God is not here punishing Isaiah, but he is constructively cleansing him. He is fitting Isaiah for something that is yet to come. When you and I sense 
our guilt before God, there is only one source for our cleansing. And that is the source that God has provided at Calvary. Where the blood of the Lamb was shed, as we sang this morning. Where God's grace, God's marvelous grace was manifested. Where God opened a fountain where the sinners of the world might come and find their cleansing as they repent of their sin. You and I worship a God who cleanses. Jacob Chamberlain was an early missionary to India. In his writings, he tells of a man who had crawled in great agony over miles on his knees and his elbows in order to bathe in the sacred stream that is called the Ganges River. Finally, he reached that river and plunged himself beneath its waters only to emerge with the same conviction, the same guilt on his soul that he had before. And the fear of death still tugged at his heart. Chamberlain saw him and took him aside and shared with him the wonderful story of Jesus Christ and what God had provided through his death for the cleansing of sinners. As the man listened to that story, he exclaimed, Oh, that's what I need! Forgiveness and peace! And as the story was further unfolded, the man came to faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. Cleansing, that's what you need. That's what I need. We worship a God who cleanses. But the story doesn't stop there. Isaiah goes on to relate to us the purpose of this revelation. There was a commission for some work to be done. Here was a man, a virtuous, an upright man by every human measurement, who went to the temple to pray. And there God revealed himself to him. And he saw how corrupt and how unclean he was before God. And God cleansed him. God washed him of his guiltiness. And then God made Isaiah his spokesman. Perhaps that is why Isaiah focused on his lips. A man of unclean lips, he said. God washes, he cleanses, he, he purifies those lips... And then God says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, Here am I. Send me. You see, Isaiah now was fit that he could represent God. He had been cleansed and could be God's servant. There are several insights that we gain from this experience that Isaiah relates to us. The first one is this, that God uses crises to bring us to a new understanding of ourselves and Him. The crisis that you may be passing through right now in your life or in your home, 
God would use to bring you to a new understanding of himself. The most important knowledge that any of us can have is the knowledge of God. God wants to reveal himself to you through what you're passing through right now. God wants to show you something more of yourself. It may not be pleasant. God may need to say to you, my child, you need to be cleansed. He doesn't say that to be unkind. But he says it because it's the greatest need that we have. I notice also that God must always deal with our sin as we come to know him in a deeper way. If you desire the knowledge of God, God must deal with the corruption of your heart if you would draw near to him. For he is holy. And as we draw near to him, that corruption becomes more evident. The story is told about a young minister who was speaking to Alexander White, a leader of the church in Scotland in the last century. This young minister told him about a friend of his who claimed to the minister that he could go several days without sinning consciously. And this young pastor wanted to know what Alexander White thought about this young man's evaluation of himself. Dr. White, his eyes burning with intensity of knowing God, replied immediately, No, sir. No man who has seen the exquisite holiness of God could say a thing like that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, writes the Apostle John. And indeed, the closer we come to God, the more we know of God, the more aware we will become of our own sinfulness. That's why it's so wonderful that God has provided the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins in Christ. And that we have an advocate who stands between us and God to intercede in our behalf in Jesus. Through him, God graciously provides for the cleansing from the guilt that we have. You see, it is not a bad thing that God progressively exposes the corruption of our hearts. Indeed, it is a very good thing that he does it. Because it is only as it is exposed to us that we will draw near to him for the kind of cleansing we truly need. And that we can then know him more intimately. God's purpose, however, in all of this process is not just that we might know him. It is not merely that we might be cleansed, as important as that is. It is so that we might serve him. It is so that he might prepare us, too, for the commission that he has for our lives in the world. Before we can serve him, we must know him. 
To know him brings awareness of guilt. Our repentance then brings cleansing from God, which cleansing then qualifies us to serve. The point that I'm making this morning is just this, that the God we worship provides cleansing from defilement so that we can carry out his calling in our lives. So often, we are just like I was the other evening, busy, perspiring in our service for God, and we're unaware of our true condition. And God draws near to us and says, My child, you need to be cleansed. For here's the real condition of your soul. Listen, friend, if God is showing you what's really inside of you in that sin that is still there, even as his child, do not despair. Oh, despair of yourself, for there is nothing in us to merit ourselves to God. But do not despair ultimately, because God's exposure of that corruption will bring you to humility and repentance and then cleansing before God. And that cleansing then fits you to serve Him. And that's why we're in the world. That's why we're here, to serve Jesus Christ in that office, the neighborhood, the home, where God has placed us and those contacts that He gives us. But before we can serve Him very effectively, there's got to be a dealing with what's in here. We worship the God who cleanses. Let's rejoice in that. And let's avail ourselves of what he's provided in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in the quietness of these closing seconds, If there are some who are here who are struggling with guilt because they realize the corruption that is in them, that like Isaiah, they might cry out what is the truth, that they are undone and unclean, and that you would then graciously cleanse and wash them through the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ and fit them for service. But Father, perhaps the ones who have greatest need are those of us who do not realize our need, who think ourselves as Isaiah did before he went to the temple, virtuous and upright and having it all together. We, above all others, need your work in our lives, showing us yourself that we may see then ourselves and be broken. Thank you for being willing to work with us and bring us through that process that we might be cleansed and useful in your hands. Amen.